there were black Americans that voted for Donald Trump. I don't know that hearing that he told me that he didn't want a black man sitting in his lobby or hearing that he didn't want people to think that blacks were building Trump Tower. I, maybe that would have had some kind of a, an effect. I don't know. It doesn't matter now. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today, Barbara Ress, was an executive vice president in charge of construction at the Trump Organization. In October 2020, Ress released her memoir, Tower of Lies, What My 18 Years of Working with Donald Trump Reveals About Him. Barbara's book didn't get enough attention, in my opinion. Her close knowledge of having worked for him for all those years makes it a valuable, insightful, and a different sort of book than most of the others in the crowded Trump book space. I asked Barbara about her career, why she wrote the book, and what she thinks of the former president. So, after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Barbara Ress, formerly of the Trump Organization. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. Barbara, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? My name is Barbara Ress. I am a licensed professional engineer and an attorney. I have uh, 40 years or more of experience in the construction and real estate development industries. I worked uh, for general contractors, uh, subcontractors. Uh, I did some electrical design work, and I worked for owners, most um, Obviously, the uh, the former president. Yeah, and I have to say that for a political show like mine, it's not that common that I have a licensed engineer on. It's kind of an intriguing fact of your life that you worked for 18 years for someone in the real estate business who somehow took himself to the presidency. From my point of view, it's a calamity for the country, but it is a, a remarkable path for that man that you work for, for sure. We're going to talk about the book that you wrote, which is really about your time working for him, what you learned about him. That's what I think makes the book unique in that you work so closely with him for so long, but also the conclusions you drew subsequently after watching him afterwards. But can you tell me about your career before you come across Donald Trump? When I graduated from college, I I started working for electrical contractors. From there, I moved to general contractors. And while I was with the general contractor, I did a lot of things. I was project manager, superintendent, a mechanical superintendent. And um, I was working on the Hyatt Hotel, 
Grand Hyatt, which is about to be demolished if it hasn't been already. And Donald Trump was the person in charge of development for the partnership that he had with the Hyatt Hotels. And so um, my company, uh, HRH Construction, was doing the general contracting, and I was sent over to that job to work as an assistant PM, and uh, that's how I met Donald. So you're working uh, on a job where Trump is involved. What's your initial impression of the guy? <laughs> well, I knew about him because I was associated with the, with the contractor, not because I knew him. He wasn't that famous. So I sort of had expectations walking in. The day I started, the chairman of the board of our company was on site. I was introduced to him. This is Barbara. We just brought him in. She's going to be an assistant project manager. And he has a contract in his hand, and he hands it to me. And he says, I want you to read this every day, and I want you to make sure that every single thing that happens is recorded and covered because this bastard is going to sue us. That was my introduction to Donald Trump. That's not your normal introduction to, to most people. A lot of times when we hear something about someone like that, we discount it. Did you? I'm not defending Trump in any form or fashion, but this is common in that world, in the world of real estate development. Developers tend to screw over their contractors. And this was a, um, a fixed contract project. It was something like $38 million or something like that. And if theoretically, if it went over that, it was, you know, the problem of the uh, general contractor, not the problem of the owner. But after about, oh, I don't know, not even a year, there were so many problems. There were so many changes on the project. There were so many things that were incomplete or unknown. Um, they switched the contract format to a cost plus a fee. And that makes all the difference in the world because we were no longer responsible for cost overruns and stuff like that. When I finally met Donald, that was my introduction when I met him, uh, I thought he was um, brash and uh, he didn't know that much about construction. I mean, you know, this was just basically I'm observing him in a meeting or something. But he was with Ivana. The two of them were very attractive. They were a power couple. They were, you know very sure of themselves and they dress beautifully and, you know, so they did make an impression in that sense. It's a very formative and long period of your career that you spend as his lieutenant. The book goes through a lot of it, but can you kind of go through the, what were the highlights for you uh, and what you were learning about him along the way? What's very clear is he changes a lot over time. He changes, but, you know, it's sort of like, it's not like he's going from this to that. It's that he's moving along this uh, continuum of right. what he's All the seeds are there. Yes. And that's one of the reasons that my book, I think, is important, uh, is because I'm really the only one that has observed this. You know, yeah. Mary Newman was an uncle, and Michael knew much later when he worked for him. Other people have, you know, worked for him for a week or a year. This was a long period of time, and I watched how the things that happened in his life impacted him. He went from being, like I said, brash and not knowing much to uh, realizing that there were people that he should trust because he trusted nobody. And he started thinking that, you know, the architects were on my side, the contractors on my side, and he started listening to them. And when he offered me a job, I did so many different things on that project. I saw the way he treated his people. 
and he treated his people horribly, horribly. Like, you know, um, the architect might say, something might come up, there was a question, why did this happen? The architect might say, well, your agent told us to do this. And Trump would go, don't listen to him. He doesn't know anything. He's no effing good. You talk to me. The first big project is for you is getting put in charge of Trump Tower. Is that right? When he um, invited me to um, meet with him in Nirvana in his apartment, uh, he talked about the project as being the most unusual, the greatest, the biggest, the most important project in the world. <laughs> and in some ways it was. It was certainly the, the most talked about project in New York City, and New York City is the world. He had uh, incredible uh, tenants and uh, incredibly priced apartments and um, it was you know it was on the news it was first time ever that there was really an interior mall anywhere uh, there was one in Chicago um, I forget the name of it but they had anchors we didn't have any anchors it was very cutting edge and you know there were luxury apartments in New York but this was he thought the preferential location. I'm not so sure about that. Fifth Avenue and 57th Street. He called it the Tiffany location because Tiffany was right next door to it. And he had this idea that Tiffany was a meaningful word. When you said Tiffany, you were, you know, calling down the angels. And strangely enough, many years later, he called his daughter Tiffany. That's a lot of responsibility for a relatively young person. How did you shoulder it? Did you enjoy the process of building? That's a big deal. Yeah. You know, the funny thing about it is I uh, I went to meet Donald and you know, I came home. I didn't answer him at the time. I came home and spoke to my husband. I said, this is more than anything, nothing like. I've never done anything like this. And what, how am I going to know what to, you know, where to go and who to get what from? He says, Barbara, Barbara, they are going to call you. They will all come to you. You don't have to worry. You will be able to deal with it. And that was very influential in my decision to take the job. But the big thing was knowing that I could be potentially subject to the kind of treatment that he gave his, his own people. And my, my feeling about that was, oh, I'm not going to take that. If that happens, I leave. That's it. And that was my deal. And there's so many instances in the book where you talk about how he raised his voice or lied, wouldn't admit that it was him that made the change order that he's that later complaining about. Or tell me about like that interaction over, that's a period of years to build that. What are you learning about him? Let me answer your first question. Did I, I enjoy, I loved it. I absolutely loved it. It was the greatest project and it was publicity and I had a good team and we were cohesive and it was great. Yeah. And you're kind of a pioneer as a female running that in New York City at that time. Or even, you know, later. I mean, it's only recently that women have made major strides in uh, construction and the, the baby steps. Was he uh, respectful to you during the course of building that tower? Yes. I mean, one of the tensions for me reading this is, is just thinking about this from the point of view of, of what happens later with this guy. I had an, a job early in my 20s where I worked for a man who had some, some similar characteristics. He was litigious. He was, in his mind at least, larger than life. He was not always truthful. 
he was the center of, of all the worlds that he could imagine. He'd written a book. He had tried to get himself to be the actor in the movie about the book. He later sued me. I kind of related a little bit. When you meet someone early in your life and early in their life, you learn something about them as a human being, even though they are very flawed. And it makes it complicated when you're entangled with someone to think about them. We were very close, Donald and I. And, um, you know, people say, how could you have Bucket with Bird Family? Yeah. And those people don't understand the business for one thing and, and don't really understand the relationship I had with Donald. I mean, you know, he was, I knew that there were bad things about him, okay? I knew that he was racist. Uh, but I, I don't know that, <laughs> that there was anyone else that I could have worked for that wasn't in that way racist. This is a different time. And I felt that my being there, I prevented so many things that he could have done that were bad by my being there because he didn't take me on. He really didn't. If I told him that, you know, you can't do something, you know, okay, yes, I can. But why? You said you're so negative, blah, 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 blah. But in the long run, he did listen to me and others. I'm not the only one. I'm not, you know, St. Barbara. There were other people there that worked for him that really knew what they were doing. They were stars. And um, that didn't last very long because he started, you know, much later. But having sycophants work for him, he preferred people that didn't know what they were doing so that he could tell them what to do and they wouldn't give him feedback on it. He thought of you early on, at least, as a killer, which is his word of, of uh, highest praise, perhaps. Absolutely. There was a side of him that recognized that it redounded to his benefit to have a few strong people around, right? At least early on. Yeah, you know, the way that he uh, evaluates a killer, um, he thought I was a killer because I didn't take any crap. I was running um, mechanical coordination, which doesn't even exist so much anymore with all the computer, you know, drawings and stuff like that. But you had to get the top draftsman for electrician, plumber, sprinkler, HVAC, and um, uh, and, and uh, ductwork in together into a room and make all their stuff fit in one space without moving ceilings. And that was like fighting and, 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 and accusations and screaming and cursing. And I, I handled it. I mean, I got it done. And, you know, one person uh, I made, he had manufactured ductwork uh, and um, he shouldn't have done it. He should have waited until we had done the coordination because we might need to change it. So I made him throw it out. I said, screw it. Maybe you can use it somewhere else. It's not going in here. And he went to his boss and his boss, who had a relationship with my contractor and my boss, and called him and said, get rid of her. She doesn't know what she's doing. She's uh, making us uh, throw away ductwork and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And <laughs> that put me on the map. You couldn't have said anything better about me than that to my boss. He just thought that was the greatest thing. And that was it. I, and I'd go to meetings, and Donald would see me in meetings, and I would say, uh, you know, such and such, uh, and the architect would say, well, it was because the drawing changed, blah, 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 blah. No, no. I would say, don't blame the contractor. I'd do this in front of him. It's not his fault. It's your fault. You changed the drawings. And Donald loved that. He just loved it. So, you know, he saw in me somebody that took no crap and stood up. 
And other people he had working for him, some, were hated. They were hated, and he loved the fact that people hated them. He used to criticize me for, by saying, you, you want to be liked. And he saw that as a tremendous weakness and, you know, totally missed the fact that if people didn't like me, they wouldn't have done the things they did over that three-day period to get Trump Tower open in a snowstorm in New York City. It was very important to me that my people respected me and liked me, um, but that was not important to him at all. It's always challenging to hold on to your integrity when you work for someone who doesn't have integrity. In the book, you talk about protecting contractors, making sure they get paid, uh, talk about trying to remain honest. There, there are times where you admit that like you let him win around that maybe you shouldn't have or maybe compromised a little bit. How did you steer yourself in your own values in that climate that you were right close to? Well, you know, first of all, I had a history with subcontractors and general contractors, and I really understood, uh, I understood construction, so everybody does, but not everybody sat as a draftsman in an in a, uh, electrician's office and a, an estimator and, you know, ran a project and, and did the mechanical coordination. I was unique in that, so I had a really strong understanding of what, what should be happening. And I knew that it was wrong to screw a contractor. I mean, he did the work, he should get paid. I mean, it was just, so I was going to change on that. I went many rounds with Donald on that. You've read the book, you saw, you know, we've had some fights, big fights, but um, nobody got screwed on any of my jobs, ever. And, you know, somebody made a statement, I, I, it may have been Joy Reid, I'm not sure that Trump never pays his contractors, or never paid his contractors. And after the interview, I said to her, that, that wasn't true. That wasn't true. And people like to say that. People like to say that. Well, they didn't. When I was there, when I was in charge, everyone got paid. Now, did we take shortcuts? Yeah, I suppose we took shortcuts, the ones that you're allowed to take. I never broke any laws. Um, in dealing with the, um, with the tenants, the retail tenants, um, I had them paying for a lot of the work that was done in the, uh, in the building. But I had a contract, and it was all legal under the contract. We built their store funds. They had to pay for it. Uh, so, you know, <laughs> I got a lot of money out of a lot of people for him, um, you know. But I didn't do anything illegal, never did anything illegal. Do you think he was when you were working for him? Yeah. What sort of things? You know, it's hard to say because I, I wasn't doing them exactly. But, I mean, I know things that I stopped. I mean, he wanted to start uh, demolition on a project we didn't have a permit for, and I stopped that. Um, but, um, you know, it was just his attitude that you see now. It's, you know, I can get away with it. Who's going to catch me? Who's going to call me on it? The laws are for other people, not me. So every time you had a problem, like with the zoning uh, law or, you know, the building code law, you know, he would try to fight it. But he couldn't. He couldn't get past me. He couldn't get past Louis Sunshine. He couldn't get past. But but his instinct is to push every boundary. It seems like. Well, yeah, I, I think that he is pushing every boundary. But on the other hand, I am not sure that he recognizes the fact that there are boundaries because he feels that he is so above the law. The way you organize your book is around 
a certain set of rules that you think explain Mr. Trump. Uh, one of them is you've sort of talked about populating the world with people who agree with him. Another one is about his intelligence and the limits on that. How would you characterize Trump's intelligence? Above average. Okay. Genius? No. He was bright. He was a quick study, but he didn't have the concentration span uh, to really learn things. He had a um, impatience. Um, that was where people fell down, and that's where I was able to stand up and others were able to stand up because he would just throw you out of this office when he didn't want to hear it. And, you know, I used to say you had 10 things for him. You pick the top three, and you're hoping that you can get them across because he just was that way. So, I mean, you know, his intelligence took him so far. Otherwise, I don't think he would have gotten anywhere near, you know, where he is. Uh, but he's no, no, Ivana was smarter than him. Yeah. And and it seems like his attention span gets shorter over time. It's very well known in the White House that he wouldn't read anything unless that his name on it. They have to give him pictures, essentially, like less and less. He just doesn't he doesn't do his homework, it, it seems like. You know, interestingly, I'm not so sure that it's less and less. I mean, you know, up to the world, we see the way he acts and conducts himself. It was uh, it was always that way. If you had something um, that you had to write a letter, for instance, it was bullet points. You know, you never made a paragraph more than two sentences because, you know, this is the way he was able to concentrate to the extent that he could. But uh, to his credit, he, he knew what was important. I will say that. And that's not untypical for a lot of sort of CEO personalities. There's almost like an ADHD type, They're, you know, like they can't concentrate because they're constantly moving from decision to, to decision or whatever. It sounds like maybe he's a little worse than average of that type of person. I don't know. Yeah, I think that when you're talking about CEOs that really know what they're doing, they've been there before. They've done this kind of work and they know what what's going on. And so they don't have to read every word. They don't have to hear every word. He's also very focused on appearance more than an average person. Tell me about that. Well, you know, he used to be attractive and he had an attractive wife and, uh, you know, he dumped her when he thought she wasn't attractive anymore or too old for him. And he talked about women the way he talks about women and it's well documented that, you know, they have no value other than either being killers or being sex objects, you know, uh, decorations. And he used to decorate his office with really pretty uh, pretty assistants, secretaries, whatever they were, clerks. He hated fat people. <laughs> he had such disdain for them. I mean, as if they were, you know, um, lazy or uh, ineffective or couldn't control themselves because they were, were heavy. And then, of course, he blew up like, uh, you know. He's a, <laughs> yeah, he's, a, he's a big man now. That appearance thing goes not just to women. It also goes to sort of everything. He's a showman and everything he does is is like, what will it look like for him? How will people respond to him? Will he have attention? Yeah, no, I agree with that. Um, the thing with the women stands on its own because it has to do with sexism and uh, sexual harassment. And he judged the way things happen would make him look. And the classic example, and it's in my book, is when I quit. 
And why would I quit? Why would anyone leave him? How could he possibly justify me quitting? And then I told him that my son was having some problems. Oh, man. The answer came, she's leaving because of his son. She's not leaving me. That's a typical thing with him. He's a liar. He's the kind of liar that is perplexing to me because, and I've run into it with other people, a person who lies unnecessarily, who doesn't even lie strategically. Absolutely. There are so many times when he would be better served by the truth that he lies anyway. I have trouble understanding that. How do you understand his relationship with the truth? Well, for one thing, he never believes that he'd be better off not lying because he wouldn't lie. I mean, it's all about what's best for him. So he does tell the truth on occasion. If it serves him to tell the truth, he certainly will. Sometimes he doesn't know the difference between the truth and, and a lie. Um, but mostly, I, I mean, you know, we used to say he lied about the time for practice. <laughs> you know? He lied about everything. But why? Do you, I mean, wh where is that coming from? Well, because he didn't feel that he had to follow the rules. The, the rules did not apply to him. They applied to weak people, stupid people. He didn't have to tell the truth. He had to say what was best for him. So he would lie about the apartment sales and he would lie about every building that he ever did being the biggest or the best or the, you know, we were the tallest concrete building. Not even close, not even close. But he said it and he said it so many times that, you know, people started believing it. And that's the big lie. That's where I learned about the big lie when I worked for, for him on Trump Talent. In other words, if you just keep repeating something, it almost becomes true by repetition, like, like Nazi propaganda. Right. That's right. Like uh, saying that the election was stolen. Yeah. Would you say that was working for him? Like that technique, was that working for him when, when you were working for him? You tell me, is it working for me now? You know, I, I think it's a really hard question. It, in a certain way, he's, he's run the table, right? He's made it to the highest office of the land. He's made it to alleged billionaire. I mean, he has been a TV star. He's done a lot of things in his life that you could see why some people admire that, admire that brashness, as you called it, right? But at the same time, it's hard to admire a guy whose values are so poor, who, you know. It, it, yeah, but you and I know that his values are so poor. Other people don't. When he was running for president, it was, you know, he's an outsider and he's a successful businessman. And, you know, nobody was aware of his so-called values. I mean, you know, or maybe a little bit, but not that much. And they saw this as being more important, that he'd be an outsider, that he'd be so smart, so brilliant. And there's, you know, there's one of the typical big lies. I mean, people actually believe that he was brilliant. Because he said he was. He said it, yeah. Yeah. Another characteristic he has is claiming credit and dodging blame. That's sort of innate to him. Got any anecdotes along the lines of that? Um, well, you know, uh, not exactly along the lines, but it, it's, it's sort of the same thing. We used to make him believe that our ideas were his so that he'd do it. And if he came up with something ridiculous and we had to change it, we would talk to him in such a way that, you know, Donald, you had a, you had a better idea about this. We'll do it this way. And that worked with him because of his ego. There's a certain type of politician or person who operates in a transactional way. 
as opposed to on principle. And, and so every, they're always trading for something, seeing what they can get out of any situation or would you say that characterizes him as well? Oh, 100%. Um, you know, it's it's always a, a tit for tat. It's always what's in it for me, a quid pro quo, as they say. And we've seen that come to life with, uh, with some things like Ukraine. But his preference, and he said this, he said he doesn't believe in win-win solutions. He believes in I-win solutions. And he'll do anything to make that big win. He does not want to compromise. And when you see him compromise, you know he's panicking. He sometimes capitulates when he doesn't think he has the winning hand. Right. The classic example is this West Side Yards project that he, he was going to build. And he, uh, he ended up, without going into the stories in the book, uh, having to capitulate to these uh, people, the locals that were holding, you know, his feet to the fire. Uh, they didn't want the big project that he was going to design, that he, we were going to get approved. And uh, so they just, you know, they stopped him. And um, they had influence with, with the government, the DEP uh, in particular. The project was going on, dying in the city uh, review process. And he was approached by a very good friend who told him, Donald, you'll never build this. This You have to make a deal with these people because they can stop you. And he did. But he made a deal. He made a stupid deal. And even their lawyer, I mean, he didn't even fight. He went in looking for 14 million square feet, came out with eight. He could have come out with 10 or 11. Anyway, after all this was said and done, he took, he claimed credit and got credit for making the project more New York friendly. I could have, I could have done this. I could have built the world's tallest building, but I decided what's best for New York. And that's what I did. He spun it. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I noted in the book was this episode where you worked really hard to sell the lease of the O'Connor and Company building uh, for much more than he thought you could get or anyone thought you could get. And you had expected to receive a commission on that. Tell me about what happened there. What was the story and what happened? He told me that he would give me a big bonus if I sold it, if I sold the lease at all. I mean, you know, it was like a questionable thing. We didn't know that the uh, the developer was going to buy us out. I had developed a lot of retail experience in, in that period of time, and I, and I understood what was going on and why he needed to buy that lease. But it was Alexander's company, which used to be a retail company in New York, Metro, and um, the chairman of the board made a bet with me that I, that uh, if I got more than $10 million, he would, you know, take me to lunch or something like that. It's silly. But with Donald, he knew. I said, Donald, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make you a lot more. And making him more is simply he got a commission. Donald got $800,000 for my work. He didn't even know the name of the person I sold it to. We called him the Irishman. That was Jerry O'Connor. And so when when the check came through for Donald, I said to the chairman of the board who I had, you know, who did take me to lunch, let me have the check and I'll bring it in to him. He says, okay, sure, no problem. And I got the check and I walked it to Donald and I said, here you go. And he says, what's that? I said, this is coming. What are you doing with it? Uh, I asked Robert to give it to me so I could give it. Who the 
blank do you think you are? How dare you do? Don't you ever do anything like that again? And that was it. I mean, you know, I said. But he said that because you you intimated that you would now get a commission on that, right? As he had promised. You were excited about that. Yes, that's why I brought it in. He had, he had, and, you know, it was just, uh, you know, don't you ever do that again. And, you know, how dare you? And he cursed out Alexander's for letting me have the check. And he went through the nine yards. And I said, you know, but Donald, you were going to give me, get, get the F out of here. You didn't get your commission. No, no. No. Do you think there was a way that you would have gotten the commission if the check had gone directly? No, not. I guess you would have had to get that something written on in a contract before trying to sell that lease if you wanted something out of it, huh? Uh, yeah, and even if I had a contract, who well, he wouldn't have it. I mean, what am I going to just sue him? That's the beauty of his contracts, you know, and why he would never allow arbitration in any of his contracts with the, um, with the subs. Because, you know, he could just drag them out in court forever and bankrupt them, you know, and that was his thing. Well, you couldn't afford to sue Donald. I don't care who you were. I mean, you really had to be a rich person to be able to lawyer for lawyer with him. Why did you leave his employ? <laughs> Which time? <laughs> <laughs> the last time. The last time, the very last time, we were working with partners uh, from Europe. And uh, we were building, we had the Ambassador Hotel in California, that site which was a very big site, uh, 25 acres or something like that. And uh, we were going to build, again, the Warsaw's building, a big six million square foot project. And it got involved in a condemnation and, and it was condemned. And it's a very long story with, with years of litigation. At any point, we were at the end there and we lost our case and we, you know, we were stuck and we didn't know, you know, we were in a bad situation and we had a big meeting with all the partners and everything. And he turned around and blamed everything on me. When you think about it, the big boss to blame a, um, someone that's beneath him is, is something that you, you just don't do. The buck stops here. Everybody knows that the big boss takes the credit for the bad people. If that were the case, he, he was very angry, very angry. And I, you know, I, I said something stupid. I said to him, you know, that Donald, there were drugs you can take for that kind of thing, which just inflamed him more. Uh, but um, after the meeting, you know, I, I saw off the people that, um, you know, had come there and I went back up to his office and I said, I quit. And by quitting, you're one of the few people who work for him who doesn't have a uh, a, a vow of, of silence. Yes, a non-disclosure. No, no, no. You, you sign them when you're getting a big bonus or so, a big payoff or something. I, I you know, now he uh, or later he, he had people sign him to begin with, and I have signed things like that myself in my career. But uh, no, I had nothing with him. There was no no uh, severance pay or anything like that. He flirted with running for president a couple times along the way. When he started to run in earnest in 2015, how did what did you think? Well, I knew that, you know, he was not the man that said he was going to run for president whenever it was 87 or, you know, or 80, 88. Uh, when I thought, you know, if you put the right people in, maybe he could do it. Because I believe that a top person is only as good as the people he has underneath him. And, um, you know, prior to that time, Trump only had very good people. And I mentioned this to my, my coworkers. They said, you're out of your 
friggin' mind. I realized that I said, no, you're absolutely right. He, he's not caliber. You know, he doesn't have the temperament. He doesn't have the knowledge. Uh, so I was prepared to be shocked <laughs> when he actually got up there and, and became one of the candidates. I was flabbergasted. Flabbergasted? Uh, what else? Were you worried? Were you, did you take him seriously as a candidate? A lot of us thought uh, early on he was running for publicity. Early on, I thought that, but I never thought he wanted to be president. Never. I thought that he was doing something. I mean, in my conspiracy world, it was the Russians that he was trying to placate and he didn't expect to win. How could he win against Hillary Clinton, for Christ's sake? I mean, she was so far superior to him. But they pulled it off, didn't they? Well, with, a, with the assistance of a, a whole sequence of, of hard-to-repeat events down the stretch there with Comey and all the mess that we all witnessed. Jill Stein and, 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 and Bernie Sanders not coming out and converting his people to Hillary people. Some of them voted for Trump. Most of them didn't vote. You know, there were, there were a lot of things that went on. But I think the Russians were the big thing. What, what were you doing election night? How, how did you see that all happen? It was my daughter's birthday. Uh, she was up at Yale. So my, my ex-husband and I drove up to Connecticut and we all went out to an Indian restaurant and had a lovely time. And we got in the car and the radio was on. And sure enough, they were saying, it looks like it's going to be Trump. And that was wrong. And I just couldn't believe it. I was just, I, I couldn't believe it. I just, how could that possibly be? This is the United States of America. This isn't some banana republic. How could that possibly have happened that a man so incompetent and so inappropriate could become the president of the United States. It was, it was horribly depressing. Do you understand the attraction that half of the country seems to have for him? I don't think it's half of the country. A large number of millions of people. Of the people that voted for him you're talking about yeah. last yeah. election, not yeah. now. Well, not both now. elections, they, he got, you know, he got a minority of the votes, but he got a lot of votes. How, do you understand why people would vote for him? Well, the two things I said, which were the fact that he was an outsider and the fact that he was, you know, so very um, uh, competent and a great businessman and all the bullshit that he had put out there. Uh, but I think that half of them, if not more, voted for him because he let them be who they were, which were sexist, racist, xenophobes. He made it good. He made it good to be a racist. So that these guys could go out and, and, and be proud that he said that some of the people on both sides were very fine people. Now, if you're one of these white supremacist gun-loving jerks and you hear that, you say, the president says, I am right. And you, you see it all over the place, all these January 6th people and, and everything else. They all say the president believes this. You took a couple cracks to say publicly what you thought. You wrote some editorials, you appeared on some news, you wrote this book that we're talking about. Why were you out there in those various ways? Well, I went out there in the beginning, very beginning, um, but I soft-pedaled. I mean, I remember being on um, Rachel Maddow's show, and I was just so, I soft-pedaled him. I, I, I didn't, you know, I didn't let it be known how very bad he was. 
I have one regret, and that is that um, when I was first opposing him in 2016, I didn't say all the things I said in my book. I never talked about those racial incidents. And the reason I didn't was because I didn't want to get sued by him. And I didn't have corroboration. And at that moment in time, calling him a racist could have been a slander. Now, you know, it's like, it's a joke. I, I can't hurt his reputation. He has no reputation. And uh, I, I had a friend who was involved with the Clinton campaign. I, I spoke to him and I said, look, I've got some very hot stuff. And so he put me in touch with one of the top people there, and they decided not to use it. Do I think it might have made a difference? It could have. I mean, you know, with people that there were black Americans that voted for Donald Trump. I don't know that hearing that he told me that he didn't want a black man sitting in his lobby or hearing that he didn't want people to think that blacks were building Trump Tower. I, maybe that would have had some kind of a, an effect. I don't know. It doesn't matter now. Subsequent to the book came the new big lie about the election, which he was preparing along the way, and the incitement of the so-called insurrection on January 6th. It's not stuff you've written about as far as I know. What are your thoughts about the way he took the loss? Well, yeah, I, I, the book was written in, um, well, I wrote the book way before it was published, and that is a long story with a sad ending. I, I was way before we knew anything about the I thought at the time that I did not think that he was going to try to hold on to the presidency. I was wrong. So do I have thoughts? Yeah, I have many, many thoughts. But I, I don't, you know, people don't value my thoughts like they do a Pulitzer Prize one and they never met him. <laughs> so I... Uh, you I, mean I like to... Carol Lenig or, or one of these other people have written or uh, Bob Woodward or there's a lot of people with very, who've sold millions of copies of books about Trump. Do you feel a little bit like you were slighted in that by the publishing world? I did not get the coverage I needed, otherwise I would have, you know, I just spoke to one of these Pulitzer Prize winners who's doing a follow-up book, and she said, without question, mine was one of the best Trump books. And it is. So I'm not rich, and I am unhappy about that. <laughs> is that what you're talking about, the, the long story with the sad ending? You tried to peddle this book and didn't get a good deal, do you feel? I never got reviewed. I saw you on C-SPAN talking about it. I saw... I saw I saw a few reviews here and there. I never got a print review. Um, I didn't even get where after um, my uh, so-called publicist gave the story to the LA Times of all people. Um, it was picked up all over the country. The Des Moines, whatever, and Register. The, yeah, the Podunk uh, News or whatever, but it was not ever picked up in the Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post. Boston Globe, Philadelphia Inquirer, and maybe why, a few. Why do you think that is? There were parts of your book that were, well, which I didn't learn because it was about the public information after his presidency. But the parts about you working together with him, I found very revealing about his character over time and the way he worked. And that seems, uh, you know, reasonably newsworthy and interesting. And there's a huge appetite for books about Trump. Apparently, there's one landing every week. Why do you think you were overlooked by these big media enterprises? I think because the LA Times uh, was the one to break the story. 
So it was not the Washington Post's story or the New York Times' story? But yeah, it's, you know, you have your uh, echelon of media and it doesn't include the LA Times. And also, you know, to be honest and fair, when a book is reviewed, um, it's reviewed sometimes even before the book comes out. But certainly galleys and previews and all that stuff are given to them months before the book is published. We didn't even have a book months before the book was published. He seems very likely to run for president again. And I'm not a political prognosticator, but I would say, unfortunately, he has a decent chance of winning just because it's a two-party system. And uh, he's pretty likely to be able to get the Republican nomination. And if times are not good, then you tend to switch parties, regardless of the character. Maybe his horrible character costs him a few points, but not enough. I mean, it's anyway, it's very scary that he can come back. Do you have any insight on a second run um, from your position or thoughts about it? Well, you know, he lost the election and took it very poorly, obviously. Yeah, he's childishly. Yeah. Is he willing to um, lose another election? So he probably won't run if he thinks he might lose, but if he thinks he might win. Well, yeah, but I mean, you know, I'm thinking that it's not a matter of thinking he might win. He thought the fix was in on this election. He thought he had it in the bag. At a certain point. Yeah. Russia doing all the bot stuff and all that stuff. And he had the, the, the joy or whatever his name, take voting uh, collecting booths out of cities, out of where, where, where minority people lived. And slow the mail down. Yep. And it screwed up the mail so that ballots didn't get out on time. So we had that. I mean, Trump was certain he was going to win. Um, I don't think that he would want to have another loss, to tell you the truth. I don't know. I, you know, my instinct tells me that he's not going to be running for president in 2024. Not mine. Uh, what? Who knows? I mean, you may well be right. What you've seen him win and you've seen him lose. I mean, he's been through bankruptcies. He's been through many lows. What do you think works to defeat him? What would you use against him if you were trying to to have victory over him? I I don't really know the answer to that question. I mean, you know, I would I would um, make um, more out of the incidents that of. Racism, for one thing. Uh, The insurrection, I would make a big deal out of that. Um, I don't know. I mean, Democrats are not doing what they should be doing right now, in my opinion, and that's not a good thing. Um, So I don't know how they would handle running against him. That's a little pessimistic, I would say, or defeatist. I don't want to be defeatist, but I mean, I'm looking at what they're doing. I mean, they come up with these fabulous plans for infrastructure and, and social change and that everyone in the country wants, even the Trump supporters want. Yeah. Well, they just, they passed the infrastructure bill. They're hopefully on their way to passing the next one. Well, we'll see. That will make a big difference. I think that will be yeah. a very big thing. Well, is there a question that I haven't asked you or a question that you always wish someone would that you'd like to answer? <sighs> Gee, that's, that's tough. Maybe just, you know, the two things that are important to me that people know. Number one is that I never screwed anyone. And uh, the other one is that, you know, don't judge me because I went back to work for him. There there weren't a lot of jobs for me out there. 
the people that you work for are all the same. I mean, it's not, I did more to help prevent racism and stuff like that on my job being there than I would have if I refused it and they brought in just another racist to, to, to be Donald's, um, you know. Do you feel any kind of kinship with the numerous staff and cabinet officials that and chiefs of staff and so on who tried to temper his behavior? A lot of them would justify, I think, their behavior by saying, like, we, if I hadn't been there, we would have gone to war with Iran. Or if I hadn't been there, we would have you know, done something far more egregious on, on some front. And I don't think anyone that ever worked for Trump really had an influence on what he did long after I was there. So that I don't believe that. I'm also a raging feminist. The thing that he said on Access Hollywood was horrific. And anyone that went to work for him after that is a pig. I'm sorry. No other word to describe it. I have no sympathy for any of these people. They're all animals. They're all selfish. They took the job because they thought it would make them look good. It would build their careers and everything else. And that's fine. That's fine. But I have no respect for them. Well, Barbara, thank you for taking the time. That was Barbara Ress. You'll find her at Barbara underscore Ress on Twitter. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.